Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. There is a show currently going on here in New York called Woman Before a Glass. It is about Peggy Guggenheim, the uh, art collector. And we have the entire cast of the show with us today in the person of Mercedes Rule. It's a one-person show. Mercedes, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Peggy Guggenheim. Uh, everybody knows the name, but I, for one, didn't know much about her other than she was an art collector and had a lot of men in her life. Uh, how did you find out about Peggy and what, what did you do to, to, to prepare for the role of well, Peggy Guggenheim? Well, uh I, I, the script, uh, Woman Before Glass, was uh-huh. sent to me about a year ago. Uh-huh. And I looked at it, and I didn't know if it had legs or not. So I uh, uh, arranged with the director and the writer for it to be read, to have a staged reading last summer in East Hampton at um, the John Drew Theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Hampton, especially East Hampton Springs, has been an art colony um, really since the turn of the century, but popped on the radar when uh, Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning and friends moved out there uh, after the war. So there's still a big population of artists out there, and if we filled the house for this reading, to my total surprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, people enjoyed it. They enjoyed it tremendously. So we decided we would do it uh, off-Broadway. And um, that's when I began my research on this fascinating critter. She, I mean, she's just fascinating. I didn't know anything about her. I, I, I had seen Pollock, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of times, mm-hmm. a wonderful uh, uh, film by Ed Harris. And uh, actually his wife plays uh, Peggy Guggenheim uh, very interestingly in that film. And I thought, oh, okay. So she was she was a force to deal with. I mean, you could tell from the film, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I read bits and pieces of Pollock's biography and I realized that Peggy figured in his life. So I started reading the biographies and I became fascinated, really hooked on this woman. What kind of research did you do into her personality, her character, her demeanor? In other words, to help you as an actress interpret her how she actually behaved. Yeah, how she actually behaved, yeah. Is there film? Did you, are there audio tapes? Did you have a chance yeah, to go there, look at her there, or did you want to go look at her? Uh, uh, yeah, definitely because um, for me the, the first uh, – uh, thing I go for in creating a character. All actors are all different. Olivier used to go for the nose. He used to say, <laughs> if I got the nose, I've got the character. But for me, if I have the voice, the manner of speech, I can really... That's the, uh-huh. that's the foundation uh-huh. of building a character for me. So uh, I, re- I got a couple of tapes. Uh, one was sent to me by uh, Lainey Robertson, a wonderful writer who put uh, this uh, play together. And uh, uh, it was done when she was about 79 and her um, collection was was going to uh, the Guggenheim for a, a brief uh, uh, loan. And uh, it was a Sunday morning ABC television show, and she must have... Well, she was 80, uh, 79, as I say. And I realized that she had that kind of uh, Euro-Brit speak that um, uh, American expatriates of a certain era in the 20th century had just a little bit British, you know, just a little bit. And it's something you hear in the um, uh, films of the 1930s coming Uh out of a lot of actresses, you know. I can't, I tell you. You (laughs) uh, It was just a... a, And she had a little bit of a slur, a little bit of a slur sometimes. It had that kind of lazy upper crust sound. So I said, okay, that's good. She she has a fairly deep voice. Edward Albee told me she had a little bit of Tallulah to her. I guess he met her a couple of times. (laughs) Um, uh, And then I saw another film called The Last Dogat 
Caressa, which I believe is uh, sold at her museum uh, in Venice, which I regrettably have not been to yet. But um, uh, And there again, she was towards in the last couple of years of her life, and there was that wonderful speech again, and this very great ease switching into uh, uh, Italian and French and English, back and forth. And uh, so I got the voice. Uh, but then... Um, Helen Harrison, who is the curator of the Pollock Krasner House in Springs, introduced me to David Porter, who was a, an artist and a, and a gallerist uh, uh, who uh, met Peggy in the 40s through Caress Crosby and actually had affairs with both women. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful, very famous Calder bedstead bedstead that was in the back uh, the headboard the headboard rather mm-hmm. of, um, of Peggy's bed and he tells a story of just lying there after making love and playing with the, <laughs> the little pieces on the calder you know um, uh, but they were all you know fairly fairly straightforward about who they slept with and what it was like I mean Peggy's uh, autobiography is a, is a read kind and of, a half kind of, kind of tell all <laughs> yeah oh and, and I have the expurgated uh, version uh, the, the original was apparently very raw. But anyway, David Porter, who is now about 94, uh, was gracious enough uh, uh, to meet with me. And he told me that she did have this kind of way of speaking, but he said she was a very insecure woman, which is amazing given Mm -hmm. the accomplishments of her Mm -hmm. life. But that even at her own parties, and she put together a magnificent party. She was famous for her parties. But even at her own party, she did tend to disappear. She was very quiet. She was not um, uh, prepossessing at all. But, of course, for a 90-minute show, you have to give the woman a little ooh-la-la, you know. So uh, what I and I think Lainey did was take the, um, the boldness of her life and put it into her personality. I know, for instance, that she doesn't use language. Uh, uh, our Peggy uses language. She, you know, d- drops into truck driver l- speak l- a couple yeah, of times. Kind, mm-hmm. kind of salty. Yeah, kind yeah. of salty. And to all uh, uh, reports, uh, Peggy was not like that. Uh, or, uh, she could say an occasional fuck, but basically <laughs> she didn't talk like a truck driver. Um, uh, so, we, we, but, but that saltiness was in her life. But she uh, was uh, quite a wild woman sexually. Now, we would call her, you know, she got into some fairly unsafe situations. She might not be living now had she lived in this era the way she lived then. Now, the the play is set in the 1960s, 1962 through the end of the decade, pretty much. At what period in her life was this? How old was she? She was born in 1898. So, she would be be 63, maybe to 66. Uh Yeah. Yeah. And she was still quite adventurous, sexually and otherwise. Oh, yeah. I, th- I think she was very sexually active right into her 60s. Gregory Corso, the beat poet, tells a story of coming to visit her, and she was at least this age at that time. And uh, she made it somehow clear to him that she wouldn't mind having a role in the hay. Uh, but he had seen her beautiful, tragic daughter, Pegine, who was absolutely gorgeous. And I think uh, Gregory Corso, whom I've met... Um, and and who is a, who is a tremendous flirt? Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 he went. He was after Pegine. Well, there is this interesting challenge of playing not only someone who was real, but someone who is not so far in the distant past that you can't encounter people who knew who knew her. Have you had people? I know we're just you're just a couple of weeks into the previews now, but have have people who knew Peggy Guggenheim seen the play and talked to you about? Just 
Yes, P, uh, there, you there are versus there her. Are, there are not that many people who who uh, knew her intimately. She she died in seventy nine. So the people who and she was you know people at, who knew her obviously she late, was eighty one. So yeah. they knew her late in life, and um, she was a, a different person from the wild uh, party girl of the twenties, thirties, and forties. Sure, um, and there are a few of them now, but. Um, I understand that her granddaughter, um, Carol Vale, who works at the Guggenheim, came. And um, uh, Carol was the daughter of uh, Peggy's son, Sinbad, uh, and her first husband, uh, 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 yeah, Sinbad. And Sinbad was the son of uh, Peggy and Lawrence Vale, uh, Peggy's first husband. Um, Lawrence Vale was a, a, an alcoholic and could be quite quite fierce and abusive as well as utterly charming. Sinbad um, had a, a very difficult and neglectful childhood. Um, I think he fared better than their other child, Pegeen. But in the play, um, Peggy's attitude towards Sinbad, which was one of neglect, um, comes out. And Carol came, and I know she was very interested, but she was also, I think, very uh, disturbed. Well, it's to, very uh, hard when it's that close, when it's yeah, an actual relative. Yeah, and this yeah. is a difficulty of playing someone who lived and still has a children and grandchildren who are alive, because it also disturbs me deeply that I, I could have uh, and may have, and the play may, in fact, disturb some of the third-generation uh, Guggenheims and Vales. You know, I'm not I'm not comfortable with that. But certainly uh, you've done, I mean, I know in TV work, you've certainly played people who are still living um, from the McBarton uh, trial yes. movie, for yeah. example. Yeah. So yeah. There, there's always that element when you're playing real people. There's always that element. And uh, um, often when you're playing real people, live people, you have to be very careful because uh, you, uh, apparently you can't libel. Uh, the deceased, but you certainly can run in amok with people who are alive. And uh, uh, I've done some living people, and it's been a bit it's it's dicey. Were, were her family members in any way involved in the creation of this? Were they consulted? No, not at all, not at all. So this would be a total new play for them if they came to see it. Yes, would... and and in some ways does not, as I say, correspond to, I think, I think in appearance and in voice, I co- and, and also in the lineaments of her life. I, we, have, we have Peggy Guggenheim up there, but in terms of the enormity of the theatrical dramatization of her persona, I think the actual woman they knew was um, uh, far more quiet. But she could be. Even in her insecurity and her quietness, Peggy could be tremendously um, <laughs> abusive herself. There's a story um, told uh, where she was sitting next to the man who was sitting next to her told it. She was, he was talking at a party. Some gentleman, I forget his name, was talking to Peggy Guggenheim. And he, un, he heard her to say under her breath during a pause in what he was talking to her about, uh, she said, what on earth am I doing sitting here listening to this horribly boring man? You know, so she could be horrible. She could be horrible. She could also be very witty. There's a wonderful story when she was involved with John Holmes, who was a, a tremendous intellect uh, and uh, and sort of a writer, Manke, who but was the great love of her life. Uh, and uh, she was in a country house with uh, Dejuna Barnes and uh, em- Emily... Uh, uh, get a very close, Coleman, Emily Coleman. 
and herself. These three women would go down with John to this country house, and the women, um, Peggy was the one who was having the affair with him, and John was very much in love with Peggy, but they would drink, drink, drink all night long, and then they would argue intellectually, you know, Mm -hmm. after dinner and drink more um, until 3 o'clock when they all passed out. And at one point after dinner, Dejuna had gone to wash her hair, and apparently she had beautiful auburn hair, and Peggy had taken a nap on the couch, and you know, a little recess from these, you know, uh, athletic conversations that would go on and on. And uh, uh, Dejuna came down and was talking to John, and they were the best matched intellectually. And uh, they, he was just fondling, uh, apparently, a curl of her still damp hair as they were speaking. And uh, Peggy, who had been napping, woke up uh, on the couch and cocked open one eye and said, if you rise, the dollar will fall. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good now, line. From, from the reality of... Um, of playing Peggy Guggenheim, simply the act of doing a one-person show. You you are out there 90 minutes on your own, and as John said, you're the whole cast. You rehearsed on your own. Yes, I'm the Is... equity deputy of the company. <laughs> <laughs> so what was what was the rehearsal process for you? How how much could you do in a day? Um... Well, I did I – did, uh, uh, we did generally seven hours a day. And we rehearsed for three weeks before we went into the technical rehearsals that um, put the actual rehearsed play into the theater. Uh, looking back on it, we all wished we had had more. They thought with a cast of one, we don't need a full four-week rehearsal. What they didn't realize is that this one had to rehearse for, you know, what would normally be a three, four, five, six, seven, eight member, you know. It was, I have to say, the first night before an audience was one of the most terrifying experiences right. of my life. Well, you've yeah. been working in because you're in a one person show. It's such a small room. You know, it really when you actually go out in front of an audience, it, it's a whole different story when you've really been in a very small group. Is this the first time you have done a one person show yes. and been it's very yes. different when you don't have anybody to play off of except your own well, yeah. I mean, when you go up on a line, there's not another character <laughs> to kind of help you, you know, work your way back into the play. In a one-person show, in a sense, the audience is the other character. You're looking at them. You're talking to them all the time. You're engaging them. So you're not talking to and working with another actor on stage. And your first job in that instance is to make sure that other actor hears you tonight this performance, not any other performance. Here's what you're saying with the line tonight. And reciprocally, you have to hear what he or she is saying tonight. And that can keep you quite focused. So the latecomers and the coffers and the candy wrappers and and, and the sne- they don't bother you that much because your focus is here. But when your focus is out on the house, you're appalled <laughs> to see how many people are coming in late, wandering around, coughing, sneezing, jiggling, you know. And you want to say, see here, children, now, snap to. <laughs> well, now, because it's all you, there's nobody else on stage with you, so there's no real pause in your concentration. You Do you look out at the house as have you're to, Have to. Have to. I, well, you saw it. I, I'm, so, I'm talking out oh, no, the no, house you're talking all to the, the house, time. But are you really paying attention to the candy wrappers being undone and all that? Yes, or are you no. so into the Yes car- and no. Actually, the candy wrappers, they now make candy wrapper announcements, so Before most people know right, not right. to do it. Um, uh, when cough and cold season is upon us, that can be a bit of a, you know, a trial for the live actor. But um, 
in uh, Peggy is talking to, th- in, in a sense, three different audiences. There mm-hmm. are three uh, short acts in this uh, play, and um, in the first one, she's talking more or less to a group of uh, of friends and friends of friends mm-hmm. who have come to uh, uh, support her in a visit from Il Presidente d'Italia, the president of Italy, who's coming to honor her. In the second act, she's talking to three very intimate friends of her later life, and I know exactly who I'm talking to. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and, in, and in the third act, um, she's basically on the phone and a couple of right. friends hanging out listening. So there are, the audience is different characters for me. And I try not to connect with actual faces because that mm-hmm. can be very jarring both for the person in the audience and uh, for me. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I connect the different spots in the house. Uh, well, when I saw you a couple of days ago, I was sitting in about the fifth or sixth row right mm-hmm. on the aisle. Mm-hmm. There was a guy behind me that was in and out of the theater three or four times during the 90-minute show. He would bounce out of his seat. He'd go out for a couple of minutes. He'd come back in. Did you notice that I on stage? I didn't. But, uh, uh, you know, people Because I'm in. thinking it was disturbing me. What about you up on stage? It was just, I, di- I didn't notice that, that at all. One, yeah. yeah, because yeah. The, the lights uh, from certain parts uh-huh. of the theater um, are blinding as uh-huh. to the house. But also, you know, it's a 90-minute show. There is no intermission, especially at matinees. You know, right. the audience <laughs> has bathroom issues. You know, you got to... Well, this, this we're all was, human. This fellow wasn't that old to have those problems well, at that point in his life. Uh, you don't but, have to be that old. <laughs> we may be on satellite radio, but let's not go there. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned going up on a line. What happened? happens when you do have a going up on a line problem? Does that, does that happen the to you? First, when, uh, the first three or four, the, the, the uh-huh. um, invited dress rehearsal in uh-huh. the first couple of uh, previews, I did go up on lines and yeah. I had to ask for a line. Um, it, but it wasn't I, like you just ad-libbed until it came to you? No, I had to ask somebody oh, off stage oh, oh. who was on book and I tried to make her a servant. <laughs> <laughs> Cara mia. You suddenly get very creative. <laughs> what the fuck is the line? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, after a while you get you, 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 you get to know the terrain so well uh-huh. that even if um, you do have them. I had one last night, a moment where I – and it's uh, – I just, I just didn't know what came next. It just mm-hmm. zoop went out, went right. into one of those brain cells that got you know knocked out in the sixties. <laughs> you know, wandering around in an empty room was the next line I couldn't access. Uh, that brain. So, um, you know, you just think the computer is hitting a glitch right now. Do a little business, and it'll come. And bingo, it came. And of course, we as the audience have no idea what the line should be. Only yeah. only you know that you've had a problem there. Yeah, the yeah. people, so you can fake people it up well. in the stage manager's booth and backstage well, are going, between all right, you and okay, them. all right, what's going to happen to her now? How is she going to handle this? Yeah, will she be back? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mercedes, we've talked a lot about the play you're in now, but I do want to take a little time to have us talk about some of the other work you've done. And even before we get into there is this great period right around the late 80s, early 90s, where suddenly Mercedes Rule burst on the scene. But you'd been doing theater for years before that. And in reading your credits, I, I don't think many people realize that you've been in productions like Medea, Misalliance, Much Ado About Nothing, Tartuffe, Antony and Cleopatra at yeah. some of the great regional theaters around the country, particularly uh, you did 
you worked several seasons, I think, at the Denver Center. Worked at the Denver Center, worked at the Guthrie, worked at the, um, oh, God, everywhere, everywhere. Uh, Actors Theater of Louisville, Indiana Rep, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, everywhere. All the regionals. And I, uh, that was what I did. I mean, I came to New York at 21 and really, I remember somebody saying at that time, Dustin Hoffman, I heard, said that it takes 10 years to make an actor. And I went, oh, no, it can't take that long. <laughs> But it did in my case um, uh, it, for many reasons. Uh, I don't think I was personally ready and also I wasn't, I wasn't trained. I had majored in English literature. So I studied with um, um, some extraordinary people in New York uh, for several years and uh, around the fifth or sixth year I started getting out and going into uh, regional theater and that's where, you know, the, the classroom met. The, the live audience. So you hadn't done the graduate to, school thing no, or anything no, like no, that? No, no, none of them would accept me. <laughs> well, when, when you were in, in school, did you know you wanted to act? Or I did. did I you? did. I did. But um, uh, I also love literature. Uh-huh. And I went into a school um, that didn't have a, a strong theater department. And I don't know. I, I just wanted to uh, major in something a little bit more strenuous for me at that time intellectually. Mm-hmm. So um, I studied uh, at the HB Studios with Bill Hickey and Uta Hagen. Um, I studied with Wynne Hanman. I, I studied with, I, I was at the Lee Strasberg Institute for a while. I took, you know, speech and, and voice and fencing and dancing and very, I, I put together my own education. When I came out of school, I, I was a tall, skinny, gawky, nobody knew what to make of me. And I did all of my auditions for NYU, for Columbia, for Juilliard with an English accent. I know, I, you know, but I look, I look like Carmen Miranda, but I'm basically <laughs> Irish. And they look at me and they, no, no, whatever she is, she's deluded. So I had to go and get my own education in theater, and it was the best thing for me. What, why the English accent? I don't know. I just, I just, it just sounded it. like it should be. Yeah, yeah. I just, that that sounded like elegant theater to me. And also, I love those great English actresses from. Edith Evans down to Maggie Smith. I love the grandeur uh-huh. of their over-the-top performances. I'd always love that. I mean, I fell in love with theater um, or renewed my vows watching Zoe Caldwell in the prime of Miss Jean Brody when I was in school. I went, bingo, that's it. That's but there is something about a British accent. Even if they're saying, I'm taking out the garbage, they say it elegantly. Well, yes, there's accent. something about yes. anything but the yes. American accent that is charming. <laughs> I have an old friend who said, um, if you have something bad to say to yourself about yourself, say it in French. <laughs> je me sens très grosse aujourd'hui sounds a lot better than I feel fat today. <laughs> I have to ask, you, you said Irish. You certainly, the, the role that I remember you first really bursting on the scene with was was in Married to the Mob, where you were playing a you know a quintessentially Italian mm-hmm. wife. What is your heritage? What is, both of both of my grandmothers were pure Irish. Hmm. I have uh, one grandfather who is um, Spanish by way of Cuba, Cuban for a couple of generations, but pure Spanish. And then I have another grandfather who is half Irish and half German. So I'm about 65%, 70% Irish. A big part of what's left is uh, Cuban 
And there's mm-hmm. a, a a little German in there. And Ruhl, R U E H L, sounds German to me. Is it, it is German. Is it, uh, Came over in the 19th century. Tanners uh-huh. and actually, there's this new store that is. Uh, I just found out. I'm I'm so thrilled. Uh, called Rule 925, uh, which is down on Greenwich Street. It's an offshoot of Abercrombie and Fitch, oh. and um, huh. it's spelled the way I spell so, my name. R U E H L. You walk in the door, and they'll be pretty excited. I am going down there for my. Freebies. <laughs> yes, there's an endorsement agreement uh, when, when coming here very quickly. We have the credit card. They won't believe. Like, are you for real? Rule, really? I know. Well, but but th- that has to be the same family because it, it's named after a, fa- a family of tanners that came to uh-huh. uh, the United States in the 19th century, and that's when my um, forebears came here. And I hope Mercedes Benz has given you some automobiles over the years. <laughs> no, no, a little discount on a um, uh, uh, a leased uh, Mercedes at one point, <laughs> and, and ever so wonderful service. But that hey, business is business. <laughs> so. You did – there was this period – it did seem for a lot of people that suddenly there was married to the mob, other people's money, the Fisher King, lost in Yonkers. It was a great burst in that It was period. a great burst. I was a, I was a late bloomer. This all happened in my late 30s and – or 40, 41. And um, uh, I'm, I'm damn glad it happened at all because it finally – you know, I finally punched through – the door and said, I'm here, you know. Um, I I have taught some uh, uh, acting classes at Juilliard and NYU and various places, various universities, and um, I have told some of those kids, if you really were born to do this, if it, in a sense, this is your destiny, this is your vocation, then you have to hang in past despair. You have to hang in past despair. (laughs) And uh, so I did, and uh, and and it happened to my enormous surprise. And when it happened, it seemed as it, it came as easily as spring rain after all those years. But what I didn't realize at the time was I broke through at uh, thirty nine, forty, forty one, not twenty, twenty three, mm-hmm. twenty four. And what I thought was going to be a nice, you know, slalom down easy street turned out to be. You know, st- uh, the game still was scarce. It's scarce for a woman in her 40s and 50s, you know. Mm-hmm. You got a trek for it, you know, which is okay. Okay. Well, well the adage is that, they, you know, they, they write roles for younger women. They really write good roles once you're beyond a certain age. But you're getting good roles now. What do you look for when you when you take a, a role, an assignment? Do you look for anything in particular? Um. I, well, you know, I look for... Um, Paying work that's irregular, you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, no, I have to. I'm, I, I have to work. Sure. I have to work, so I don't always do timeless, a, timeless literature. But I do. I can't do garbage either mm-hmm. because you know you can't make anything out of garbage except garbage. So um, uh, you, you you look for something where that you can create a three dimensional character with that is worth. You you look for a piece, a play, a movie, a cable film with a beginning, a middle, and an end that has dramatic tension in it, and uh, and writing that can that either is or can be massaged into to real character. What do you think was, of all the roles you played, the most challenging for you to... Oh, God, to, it's to hard to say. Um, or most um, interesting, what, what, whatever you want to call it. The first big challenge was doing Medea at the Denver Center Theater. Um, and uh, that was sort of a miraculous. I was uh, uh, quite young, and uh, um, uh, the... Uh, 
rehearsals went very well. Actually, Zoe Caldwell and, and Robert Whitehead, her husband, who were to do it on Broadway and the next year, came to take a look at it because they were doing the same uh, Robinson Jeffers tra- translation that I did. And uh, uh, But suddenly, I don't know what happened. I got scared. I got um, uh, frightened as we got close to opening. And uh, I lost the pacing. I started making lots mm-hmm. of mom- moments. I, mm-hmm. I, I lost the good, uh, standard American elegant speech, and I started sloughing off into lazy speech. And at mm-hmm. one point, the director, disgusted with me, said, this sounds like a Rota ep- episode. I'm through with you. <laughs> yeah, <Rota> and, <laughs> and he kept making me rehearse, rehearse, rehearse during the previews. And I was just going nuts. So I, I took out the whole cast one night for a drink after the show, and I just said, frankly, what am I doing wrong? What have I lost? And they were all very kind, and you haven't lost anything. Just keep, you know. But Tandy Cronin, who's a wonderful actress, daughter of human Jessica, was in sort of the next huge role. She was the leader of the chorus, and she said, you know what? You're the one who's on stage the whole time. The rest of us, come on, go off. We can, we deal with you. We go up. You're out there the whole time. You've just got to snap the whip. You're making moments. Move that. You're controlling time. Move that time along. Tell the story. Mm. Don't let the audience get ahead of you. And I thought, ah, it's a question of pacing. So I went back the next night, and I went, I'm just going to crack the whip. I'm just going to do what Tandy said. And bingo, the whole thing fell into place. Audience jumped to its feet. It was a transformation. And I learned something so important. But, yeah, I had to go to the edge of hell to learn it. But, then, of course, that's happened a number of times in my life. <laughs> that was scary. Lost in Yonkers uh, was scary. Um, working with Neil, trying to please Neil, trying, you know. Um, uh, and I did. And I, I felt I came away with a very um, a fond relationship. But that was a bit frightening. Um, this one that I'm working on now is scary. The goat was scary. My God, the first time we brought out that dead goat at the <laughs> invited dress rehearsal, the, the audience howled. They hooted. Well, that, I mean, that, let, let's talk about that because that was, I mean, there were reports in the press and you, I never believe everything I read about that there was a lot of tinkering with how to make that work. And we're talking now about Edward Albee's terrific play, The Goat mm-hmm. or Who is Sylvia, mm-hmm. which you mm-hmm. did on Broadway with mm-hmm. Bill Pullman. Um, how much tweaking of that was going on? Was, no, was Edward experimenting or um, – uh, No. Edward pretty much stood by his script, the script he delivered on the first day of rehearsal. We, there, were, there were one or two words taken mm-hmm. out or changed. Because um, the rumors were, do you see the goat? Do you not see the goat? Well, that was, the, that's what we were tinkering with. Uh-huh. I mean the idea was um, to go into something that was really Greek at the end of that play, to bring on this – sacrificial animal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the script, I was supposed to have this dead goat over my neck, over my shoulders and walk in with it and just lay it at um, Bill Pullman's feet. Well, a, a goat, even even a, a half-fake goat, is far too heavy. It's got to look heavy. It's, a, a goat big enough to attract Bill Pullman would have to be too big to get over my shoulders. So, with, of course, we realized that I'd have to carry it in my arms. Then, you, so the first show, I carried in this goat, bloody goat, which also had a lot of dirt on it because, you know, goats are in dirty mm. pens and stuff. And I came out, I appeared with it. Now, in rehearsals, they, we'd all been very reverential at this moment. So it was an entire shock to us when um, the audience started screaming with laughter. Mm. And then I had these uh, lines that had always been very profound in the rehearsal hall. I gave it to him. I just said, here. And I said, 
you were right about her eyes. She had such beautiful eyes. Mm. But mm. when I said here and gave it to Bill, the audience laughed even more. And then when I said you were right about her eyes, she had such beautiful eyes, they fell out of their seats. <laughs> so we didn't know what to do. The whole thing had taken a wrong turn somewhere. So what we wound up doing, we played, a, we covered the goat, we, we uh, brought it in a sheet. We, so it was, it was less appalling looking and possibly risible, you know. And, um, and then I, I just pulled it on towards the end and stayed up there um, on the top uh, level of the stage, which had an almost altar-like effect, and, um, and left the goat there. And eventually we, we tamed the moment to what we wanted it to be, which was uh, a gasp not, and, not a, and not a guffaw. But it took it took a while for us all to understand, uh, you know, uh, what the people who met us on the other side of the footlights were going to make of that moment. And there were there were some uh, uh, shortnesses of temper all around. <laughs> but um, we all we all knew we were dealing with something difficult, but something potentially powerful. And I have to say, we've all remained great friends. Well, stage or film or television. What about your juiciest role, the most fun role, the role like I really want to sink my teeth into this one? Any role really stand out? Well, you know, it, no, it, you, you, you couldn't say one. It's like um, is, is any side of a well-chiseled prism uh-huh. more memorable? Definitely you know, other, yeah. uh, 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 m- m- married to the mob, terrifying. Um, but but wonderful first terrifying. big role. Well, I didn't realize how terrified I was, but um, uh, I apparently I got the role. I was shocked. It was the biggest film role, the first big film role I ever got. Um, and I went out to visit a friend in Tucson, got a big permanent. It was in the big hair days. Came back, went up <laughs> that to That movie vis- is all about big hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they weren't expecting that. You don't just, you know, <laughs> go out and get this yeah. huge perm two weeks before you're going to do a show without asking hair and makeup. But I didn't know. What did I know? I had to be in New York for tests. I wasn't there. I was up in the country. Um, met this cute young guy and rolled down a hill of clover the way you used to when you were a kid up mm-hmm, in the country. Sure. Got a case of poison ivy that was lethal from my nose and face all the way down to my ankles. I was covered in in welts. You know, so now I have this this, uh, huge permanent and body with red welts all over it. And then I get in a traffic jam for the first reading and I'm 40 minutes late for the first reading of the play. Um, Jonathan called and he said, Mercedes, um, do you really want to do this film? Because I'm beginning to think, Demi, that, that mm-hmm. is, you are sabotaging yourself. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm just having a little problem with my unconscious, my subconscious. <laughs> I'm going to work it out. We're going to have a nice chat. And first day of, of, of filming, I'm going to be A-OK. We had this wonderful producer, Kenny Ut, and Kenny just took me in the hand and he said, darling, you're going to be fine. My agent had called and said, I, w- I, I wash my hands of you. You are just, un- you know, you're killing me here. You're shooting yourself in the foot. Kenny said, don't worry about it. Don't worry. Don't listen to any of them. I'm taking you to a doctor. And he got me some cortisone shots and he held my hand the whole time. And he said, you go home and take a nap. And when you come on set two days from now, you're going to be fine. And I was. And it was Kenny's love that really pulled me yeah. through that. But I, 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 before my first shot, the, the, the demons weren't finished with me right before my first shot. And I had been pacing my 
trailer all day. I was, I was there at nine, and I didn't do my first shot until four. I was in yeah. hair, makeup, everything. <laughs> I was I wasn't sitting down, so I wouldn't wrinkle my costume. You know, I was saying my lines over and over again. I get to the set. The set is this little uh, hair salon out in the uh, island somewhere. I go into the bathroom on the set for the last time. You know, and <laughs> I lock myself in. The door will not open. <laughs> Something happens you can't to get the door. Out. I'm banging. They're moving cameras, moving lights. Nobody hears me banging. I thought, okay, this is it. I am, I am an unemployed actress. This is it. I said, God, God, you know, you, you don't, I don't deserve this. Well, suddenly somebody came and opened the door from the outside, and I went out. And from that moment on, I had so much fun. And that was sort of the beginning of my being known. I had done Big, uh-huh. The Mother and Big, but uh-huh. that was... and uh, But every every juicy part like that has always come with some huge uh, crisis in the middle of it. I just crisis, wait for the crisis. Personal yeah. life crisis is a Yeah, the crisis with the, with the, with the piece, whether it's right, the right, goat right, or right. the Medea story uh-huh. or the story of, of you know... Well, then we have to ask egg. about a couple of other shows. Other People's Money? Other People's Money... Yeah, that well, um, it, it, the big crisis of that play was it didn't have an ending when we first uh, when we first did it, and uh, we had to really sort of um, uh, work with uh, Jerry Sterner and and our director and uh, to find an ending for that. Um, I, that was it. That that piece, while there wasn't a big personal crisis in that one, that was a shocker. Uh, we had no idea it was going to appeal to the general public um, at the level that it did. Well, the great story on other people's money, which is, is worth bearing out, is it got decent reviews, not raves from everyone. And it actually ran at a loss for about three months off-Broadway mm-hmm. before it turned around. But mm-hmm. then it became – you had Donald Trump and every yeah. Wall Street financier suddenly trooping down to the Manetta Lane Theater to come see that show. Not not your usual theater groupies. No, no. It was uh, every uh, young potential master of the universe, you know, in New York. So we uh, <laughs> therefore had a very uh, uh, long and successful run. Um, but no, no play that I've ever done, uh, oddly enough, or very few, very few. Uh, Rose Tattoo got a great review, but um, have gotten great reviews, and they've all gone on. Uh, other people's money, uh, uh, Lost in Yonkers, I'm not Rappaport, The Goat. They've all gone on to be to all of them win Tonys. Uh, except for other people who was off Broadway. Broadway. And every one of them. And um, either been Pulitzer winners or, or nominees. So, you know, yeah. we, we have to take this Go critic figure, thing. Right. So know, as we ask, as we ask about other projects um, and just your memories of them, um, The Fisher King? Oh, that was great. That was great. Um, uh, I loved working with Terry Gilliam. And... Uh, um, Working with Robin Williams, well, all of them, Jeff Bridges, Amanda Plummer, what? But to have Robin Williams and a member of Monty Python to be spending time with—that's quite a match. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, those guys are um, so titanically. Well, all of them are. Jeff is quiet. He's a he's 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 a still waters that run deep kind of guy, but. God, uh, uh, Robin and Terry it kept everybody, you know, uh, especially Robin. 
laughing through the whole thing. There's this one dinner scene we do in a in a, chi- a Chinese restaurant, and of course we we started at six p.m. and worked all the way through the night till six a.m. Uh, at this table, and every time we cut and cut to another part of the scene or another close-up or a two-shot, um, Robin would just do stand-up the whole time. <laughs> we were in stitches. We were dying. Really? I never laughed so hard for for 12 straight hours. Um, Robin's sort of like a, a w- w- what are those things that they put on the tops of buildings to lightning rods? He was a, He's like a lightning, lightning rod. rod of humor in the universe, you know? I mean, he just picks it up. From the from the cosmos, and and he just he just vibrates with it. It almost, but I was going to say it's chosen him in a sense. Um, but uh, uh, I I kind of feel that way uh, in a very modest way about what I do, and I know a lot of actors who are born to be actors feel that way. There was a story uh, somebody told me about recently about Stephen King. Somebody was interviewing him and said, "Why do you why did you choose this uh, this genre to write in?" And he said, what makes you think I chose it, mm-hmm. you know? It chose me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a real feeling of that uh, with the great ones. Working in film, working in television, working on the stage, any preference? So that Obviously, one is before a camera, that is before a live audience. Is, is it different for you as, a, as an actor in terms of your performance? Well, um, stage uh, pays about car fare and um, is tremendously difficult, is fraught with... Um, uh, terror and is uh, long, hard, drudgery work. So that's why I love it the most. <laughs> you love live theater the most. Uh, I love live theater the most. Um, uh, it, it is all those things. It is the scariest. But Scariest um, because... Well, because it's just you out there. You're out there. You know? No, you can't You can't just do a, a, a three-minute scene and cut, and if you're not happy with it, do it again Shoot and it again, again and right. again right. in a, a very enclosed, small audience of a studio, you know, or a, or a, a set. Uh, uh, you, you get one shot at it mm-hmm. eight times a week, and you have to tell it from the beginning to the end. Um, and... Uh, uh, but that's where the actor is most powerful. In film, it's the director who – it's the director's medium. And television is, yes, the actor, but it's also the writer-producer's medium even more. They, have the, they hold the reins there. But in, in theater, it's basically the actor. Basically, you go back to the origins of theater, which were on the steps of the Greek temple. I mean, the, the, the priest and the chorus. Right. The, the, you meet this group of people this night and this night only in time and space, that you come in your door and meet them at the footlights, they come in their door and meet you at the footlights, and you have an exchange that does have a vibration that is very powerful and goes back to its earliest spiritual roots, and I think that's why I love it. Now, in a show like like you're in now, uh, Women Before a Glass, where you're the entire cast, where you have yeah. obviously great control over what you do, or any other show, does your performance change over the life of the show? As yes. They always do. And this this changes, too. The best image I can give you is imagine uh, uh, a a jazz uh, uh, combo Uh playing Lush Life every night, you know. All the places where they can circle an eddy um, and still keep on the melodic line um, and still have a beginning 
a middle a rise to a kind of climactic uh, uh, point in the in the performance and then a resolution. In other words, fully serve the song. Mm-hmm. But as I say, um, uh, riff differently. Different. You have to do it. It's the only way to keep it alive. So you riff like a, like a musician. Because I guess after a while, repeating the same lines each night could get stale. So you have to find new experiences in it? In good writing. Good writing can hold a lot of different interpretations. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you look to mine different stuff. Um, I, I, I kind of was saying to my uh, good friend Pat Hodges, who I have the great, great, it's a great honor that she's understudying me. She's a wonderful actress. Um, I said, you know, uh, I have to renew my vows now. You know, you, you have to go in and you find uh, different uh, uh, p- personalizations to people and lines uh, that um, uh, keep it fresh. And how about your personal mood that day? Your happy mood? You're in a sad mood? Does that play into I find, it? I find, of course, it's going to affect me. It's going to affect the audience. Uh-huh. You know, if you hear that we've gone up to Code Red or mm-hmm. Code Orange or whatever... Or there's a snowstorm, or it's just a plain old Tuesday night, the beginning mm-hmm. of the work week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to affect the audience. It's going to affect you. Uh, so everything, the weather, everything affects us both. And we just have to ride with what's going on in that moment, in that moment in time and space where we meet. Yeah, I think we as the audience, we're sitting there watching a performance, you or anybody up on stage. We tend to forget that you're a real person with a real life outside of your, quote, job, what yeah. you're doing that moment. Yeah. And you may have had a terribly bad day for some reason in your personal life or a wonderful day or whatever. We don't think about that. All we see is your performance up on stage. So it must be a great challenge to be able to consistently deliver night after night. If you're going through a, a very difficult personal uh, episode mm-hmm. in your life, it takes a lot of discipline to uh, leave it at the stage door. It takes a lot. But it's a wonderful discipline to learn. Also, what you find in that is that there is um, a relief in it. Because even if you are going through something difficult, for this hour or hour and a half, you're out there in the place you love most in another character, working Mm -hmm. with an audience. And you once you go through that moment of discipline where you say, I have to put this aside for an hour and a half, then there's actually relief there's, it, it delivers a comfort to, uh, to do Yeah, I, I know in, in, in my role here at this radio station, I often forget to do things in my personal life that I've been meaning to do, like mail the, the, the bills off, you know, the mortgage payments, yeah. that kind of stuff, because yeah. I get so wrapped up in my, quote, job. Yeah. I would think, though, when you're getting into a performance, that's what you're focused on at that moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 But see, I, I, I have to keep reminding myself that this woman, Peggy Guggenheim, was a woman who read books, who who got caught uh, uh, the flu, who mm-hmm. was lucky in love and unlucky in yeah. love, who had um, moments of of silence and 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 depression and sadness and loneliness and uh, went through all the boring things that we human beings do over the course of a life and changes and aging and everything like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I have to keep remembering her common humanity. Do you think that were she still alive, were you to know her, you would like her? You would want to be with her, hang out with her, whatever? It would depend. I, I certainly think we uh, would have been uh, – we, 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 I, I think we would have been friends uh, maybe in her later life. I would, I would hope so 
because I think she was very gentle towards the end. There's a, and, and she was friends with Yoko Ono, mm. you know, and Mary McCarthy. Uh, and the people who met her then, the women who met her then, had good words for her. I mean, she could be tough. She could be cruel. She was not a great mother. But at the very end, there's a, a lovely inter, uh, interview with a man named Constantine in the last Ogaressa. And they're on her gondola. And she had one of the last gondolas, real gondolas in uh, in Venice. And he said he had only met her in her late 70s, I think. And she became a patron of his. He was a, an artist, a glassblower. And he said, uh, I am content that people uh, uh, in my art, so long as people buy it, and um, and Mrs. Guggenheim remains my patron. And he said that Mrs. Guggenheim, the interviewer, said is very important to you. He said, yes, I learned from her spiritually. And then he paused for a second. He said, I learned from her even in her silences. Mm. So I don't think anybody would have said that about Peggy in her 30s or 40s or mm-hmm. even 50s. But she emerged into this woman of great spiritual depth at the end. And this man who only met her in the last, I think, six or seven years of her life, only knew that woman. And that woman, I think, I, I would, would have been a delight to know. Well, for 12 hours a week, you are Peggy Guggenheim <laughs> at the promenade. Promenade or promenade? You say I tomato, know. I say tomato. Yeah, I <laughs> say promenade. Potato, potato. <laughs> promenade. It sounds almost British, almost elegant. The promenade yes. theater. Rhymes with marinade. <laughs> at Broadway in 76, 12 hours a week, eight performances. Peggy Guggenheim, as interpreted by you, Mercedes Rule. Thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. It was fun. Likewise. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available on demand, online, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.